Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Thanks very much for showing up despite the challenges that the devil put in your way. Uh, it's very nice to see you. Anybody get ticketed? Because this was a tougher year. Closest, probably tie between Schlesselman and me. He peeled out in front of the cop and the cop threatened him with a ticket and he's an elder here. You would think he'd have better judgment. Or maybe that was just savvy leadership. We will never know. <laughs> uh, look deep down in your heart of hearts. This still seems super loud. Look deep down in your heart of hearts and decide if you want to come on the 17th. You can tell me next week. I will come on the 17th if you will come. But, you know, as the scriptures say, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, uh, you know, sometimes I get here and it's just me and a dozen bagels, and that wouldn't be any fun. So, if you, you know, it's just the week before Christmas, Christmas Eve, if you can come along, I'll come along. If you need a longer break, that's okay with me too. So, we'll eventually get to where we're going. Everybody okay? So, next week, let me know. Questions about anything? Good morning. Um... You got any sins? Because we are in the sin business. And so we're just gonna check around a little bit. There's several members around who are willing to kind of probe you and help you in perfect Scientology direction. Oh wait, no, that's my other gig. So no, no, uh, what, what, we're, what we're looking for here is if you have sins because we'd like them to take them away from you. Your sins aren't any good for you. Uh, you know, this great discovery that uh, your sins aren't good for you. When you sin, when you touch something evil, you give it incarnation. The evil wells up and has action through its flesh. Just think for yourself, right? The possibility to gossip is here, or to steal is here, or to lie is here. You learned about these in the Ten Commandments. But so long as you can push them away, protect yourself, hold them at arm's length, everything is going to be fine. But the moment, you know, you touch them, take them close, think it over, right? It's Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, Blessed is the man who does not sin. This is exactly how it works. Sin is there, you're walking by, and you're silly enough to sit down and get to know it. And suddenly, that's the end of you. Blessed is the person, holy is the person who doesn't do that, keep walking. But in our long experience in the church, we've actually found people who've sinned. It's remarkable, Megan. They all seem like such nice people. And yet, if you could look deep into their souls, there's, I mean, people in that direction have donuts tucked away in their purses for later. Breaks a commandment. So, here's the one thing to remember, Emma. This is it. Jesus takes away your sins and the only way that they can hurt you is if you take them back. But if you took them back, that'd be stealing. That'd be another sin. So, Vicar, where are you with the aphorism of the day? Vicar, don't let one mistake become two. That's right. Good job. So, um, he, he take, Jesus takes away your sins. 
and the only way they can hurt you is if you take them back. So tomorrow you'll kneel down and you'll say, um, I'm a poor miserable sinner. And Jesus will say something like, I already knew that about you. I saw the donuts in your purse. And then uh, you'll say, I'm deeply sorry. And he'll say, that's a good idea. And then you'll say, forgive me. And he said, already did. And then you two can go be friends for the rest of the liturgy. So we should look at, uh, we should have a look at that and um, see if we can make you feel a bit better about everything that's happening. Now, I hope the vicar didn't bill me for a full hour when he, all he did was turn that knob over there, but he does have a minimum. So uh, there you go, Mr. Sternad. There you go. Thank you so much. I'll go, I'll go this way if you go that way. Um, you know, you people who are St. John people have seen this before, but uh, it wouldn't hurt you to see it again. There you go, Emily. Thank you very much. Nice people back here. To be a bit more serious, one of the things that uh, is a mark of spiritual maturity is when you realize just how devastating you've been to other people. And the, the, the horror that your sins have caused. And when you click over into that, when you've done something that is so horrible that you surprise yourself, uh, that's the beginning of sort of self-knowledge. So this is how sin feels. You see this right here on the front, right? I'm alone in the dark, and I am thinking what darkness would be mine if I could see the ruin I wrought in every place I wandered, and if I could not be aware of the one who follows after me, right? So if you and I could just be aware of the ruin that we've caused, I mean, I can't, honestly, and this is, you know, trite but true, at some point, most people who come to see me talk about how horrible their relationship was with their mother or their family, father or their family or their siblings or somebody dear to them who hurt them so deeply that they've never quite recovered. And then, you know, they imitate that behavior and things just cascade and off everything goes. If you've betrayed a friend like Judas did, right? Or if you have wounded folks the way St. Paul did, and you see that in yourself, if you could see the ruin that you've wrought, then your life would be very different. Gentler, more humble, and more patient with other folks. Whom do I love, O God, when I love thee? the great undoer who has torn apart the walls I build against a human heart. One option when you sin or you sinned against is that you say, that's the end. It's too painful to be in love. It's too painful to have family. 
It's too difficult to have friends. I'll go it alone. Of course, Bonhoeffer's great quote. The devil wants each one of us all to himself. And so, one of the greatest possibilities for sinning is when you're all alone. But if you jettison everybody else because you've sinned, then your possibility for sinning again, for taking your sins back, for finding new sins, exponentially increases. The great undoer has torn apart the walls I built against the human heart, the mender who has sewn together the hedges through which I broke when I was seeking ill. We talked about that, the Ten Commandments as your friend, holiness as joy, and your life being bounded by holy things. And so when the Lord says to you, I'll be your God and I love you and I'll serve you and here's my name, if you ever need me, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, love your kids, honor your spouse, be happy with what you've got. That is the kindest thing that could possibly be said to you. One of the things I tried to do over the last two weeks is have you take the Ten Commandments as your friend and not your enemy. As the hedge which you should not break through. The love who follows and forgives me still. Fumbler and fool that I am with things around me of fragile make like souls. How I am blessed to hear behind me the footsteps of a savior. I sing to the east, I sing to the west. God is my repairer of fences, turning my paths into rest. So it is this notion of restoration, right? That you would come home again. One of the huge things that the church misses, and that we miss too as Christians, is that God sent Christ because he wants all his children home again, every last one of them. There's, there's, no, there's no child of creation that God doesn't want home. Heaven's a poorer place if all the wanderers aren't sought and brought back. So, uh, but that doesn't mean you get to come back on your terms. You, of course, get to come back on God's terms, but God's terms are really very good. So you, you'd rather not have your sins, right? Occasionally people will ask, what's the unforgivable sin? The unforgivable sin is the one that you hold back from God. So tomorrow when you kneel down, if you've got a hundred sins, um, but there's one you'd like to hold on to, right? Hating your in-laws or gossiping about your next door neighbor. If you hold that back, that's the one that's not forgiven. So the sins you present are the ones that are forgiven, no matter how horrible they are. If you hold your sins back, um, God won't force you to be forgiven or to be saved, but it's a really bad idea. And by now, you should begin to realize that Jesus always works in full blastness, right? He, he wants it all. He wants all of your sins and he wants you to ha experience all of his joy and beauty. He wants you all to hang together as one church and to live in love because, frankly, you need each other. Because you're, you know, like me, a damn sinner.
So that's how sin feels. Now flip over and you get that, and this came from somebody in this class. Um, that's how sin feels. This is how absolution feels. Who's a good dog? Who's a good boy? Who among us can truly be said to be good? What is goodness? You are. What? This is absolution. Tomorrow, the Lord will say, you're a good boy, girl. And then you'll say, am I? This is amazing, right? So that's the first thing that will happen to you tomorrow when you, when you come to church, right? How are you doing so far? You okay? Now, since this is... Re- Vicar, you're back! I love you so much. Thanks for coming back. I was worried about you. He's a handsome man. Do you like the Vicar's new haircut? Yeah, yeah see? He went to the hipsters down at Sheridan, one, one more than another. It's never clear if they're more proud of their, you know, tight sides or... They're new tattoos. It's just, I never quite know what's going on down there. But, and the thing is, I can't go there anymore because the old guy who used to cut my hair actually thinks I died during COVID. And so uh, I don't want to go back and ruin his fun. Besides that, I'm, I don't give him much to work with. But the Vic, I mean, with that gorgeous mop, look at that guy. I mean, come on. You know, that's, a, that's one beautiful man right there. So there you go. There's only one story in Scripture, right? And this is it. If you had to pick one, although I'm going to say this when I get to the woman caught in adultery too. There's only, there's, this is the only story there is in Scripture. There's only, there's only one story in Scripture. The story is that your Heavenly Father wants all His children home again. The story is that God wants you back and He would do anything to have you, Right? So this is the only story in Scripture. And I just, before I'm, you know, even in advance, I want to say a couple of things about it, which one is, pay attention, the gospel is touch, physical touch, sacramental touch, water and bread and wine and flesh and blood touch. Right? And it's all or nothing. And... You don't generate it, start it, or make the first move. This is is the greatest story, right? Oh, they were tax collectors and sinners drawn near to hear Jesus. That's a way of saying everybody came out. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the good guys are there and the bad guys are there. Now what's going to happen? Jesus said... There was a man who had two sons. Now, you've heard this story before, so I'm going to gloss it as we go. So there's a man who has two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, drop dead. This is remarkable stuff for Middle Eastern culture where everything is honor and shame. It's doubly remarkable because it's the younger child who has no status in the household. Everything goes to the older child, the older son. So the younger son is far off his game here, demanding things that do not belong to him. The farm would go to the older son and telling his own father to drop dead because the only time he's going to get this stuff is when his father has assumed room temperature. The younger said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. 
And lo and behold, the father does in fact drop dead. He divided his property between them. Now you can imagine all the consternation that this causes. How will the father live now that he's given away part of his estate? What about all the people who depend on him? How about living in a small Middle Eastern town where everybody knows everything about everybody? So there's family shame involved. And of course, there's the older son who feels like he's a victim too. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had. He took a journey into a far country and he squandered his property in reckless living. So he basically sinned, right? This is basic sinful stuff. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, a Gentile, right? because he keeps pigs, or at best an unclean Jew, but you know, Gentile probably is the way this works, who sent him into his field to feed the pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This is to be utterly dehumanized. He has absolutely nothing. He's lost everything. No one has mercy on him and he lives like an animal, right? So Jesus is trying to say, whatever you've done, you prodigals, I knew somebody like that once. But when he came to himself, which is a very interesting turn of phrase because he hasn't shown to be the most reliable person so far, he said to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but I perish here with hunger, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Memory, friends. And you'll notice that when he left, his father did not destroy him. I've had friends, you have too, probably, whose parents have either abandoned them or disinherited them you know, on their deathbed, sort of put the final, you're no son of mine. Interestingly, this father turned the other cheek. His son says to him, drop dead. And the father says, go in peace. Amazing stuff. And because of that then, the son still has memories of a place where mercy exists. You and I might think about this the next time before we blow somebody up irrevocably. So, he arose and he came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So, you gotta pull each part of that apart. In the ancient world, Old men did not run. And so there is this image of the father who every day scans the horizon looking for his son. And one day, over the horizon, that son appears. 
and he pulls up his robes and he runs down the main street of that small village, which would have called, caused a stir. Why is he running? Where is he going? What's so important that this man would humiliate himself and give up everything and show everybody what's up? And of course, imagine what it must have been like when the goal turned out to be his horrible, horrible son. And yet he doesn't stop. He ran, he ran and embraced and kissed. And the son said to him, Father, I've got some excuses and a deal to make with you. This is extraordinarily important, right? Absolution, forgiveness is all or nothing. And these are your choices. You can make excuses or you can be forgiven. You can do a deal or you can be forgiven. But you can't have both. Because the truth is, there's no excuses for your sin. There's no excuse you can make that would make your sin okay. There's holiness and there's sinfulness. And you can't sort of say, I want to be sinful so that I can be holy. Or I want to be sinful in service to holiness. It's impossible. I'll serve the devil so I can serve God. No excuses. No deals. But now watch how this works. Father, I sinned against heaven and before you. That's a pretty good confession right there. You should have stopped. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. See, already the deal-making begins right there. Because when you're a son, you can never not be a son. You can be a bad son, you can be a wayward son, you can be a sinful son, you can be an evil son, but you're never not a son. Just like you are never not a child of God. You can be a bad child, you can be a wandering child, you can be a sinful child, you can be a horrible child, but you're never not a child of God. So, but you see, this is, this is the, he, he tries to make terms on which he thinks he could be well received. He tries to do a deal. By the way, the whole Reformation was fought over this single point about whether or not you could do deals with God. If they would have gotten past this, Luther would have been just another um, he would have just been another um, congregation like the Dominicans or the Jesuits or the Augustinians. This is the single point that broke on whether or not God forgives everything or whether you and God need to get together and work it out. Um, Galatians 1, 8. If anyone says you can get together with God and work it out, let him be anathema, let him be damned. So, uh, but you see it everywhere. So he's moved, from big, he's moved from big sins back to little sins. And couldn't the little sins make it right? You know, white lies and all that. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So the first sentence is a great confession. Tomorrow you're going to kneel down and say, I've sinned against heaven and before you. As soon as the son tries 
to make a deal, launches into excuses, tries to make it better on his own, the father mercifully, kindly, properly stops him. Because, you know, he's got a whole speech about he could be a hired hand and he'd work for the bread and someday he'd pay the money back, you know, like FTX. Don't worry, we'll get it back to you. So, um, you know, it's the same story. There's only one story in Scripture. But the father who has already embraced him and squeezed the sinfulness out of him and kissed him to show him honor. If you don't kiss, you don't honor. When you kiss, you honor. This son, he has already squeezed the sin out of him and honored him with a kiss. Says, bring the best robe, that would probably be the father's own robe, and put it on him, passive verb. Give it to him, dress him, treat him like he's somebody. And put a ring on his hand, maybe a signet ring, maybe a familial ring, maybe a ring that marks him as being restored. And shoes on his feet, that's the sort of thing you do for important people. Not everybody gets shoes. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. And now the single story in scripture. My son was dead and is alive again. Resurrection. He was lost and now is found. That's you and that's me. And they began to celebrate. Right? Glorious stuff. And so you see Rembrandt's rendition on the back. If you turn it over. Uh, of the father, you know, holding the son close as he weeps into the father's robes. You can see how his uh, dirty, tattered shoes are gone. And, you know, people who are clever have observed that the father has a man's hand and a woman's hand. He has a strong hand and a soft hand. He has a law hand and a gospel hand. He has a, a hand that's holy and a hand that pulls his son back into holiness, but gently, like a mother. Right? Pulls children back. And that should be, could be, the glorious end of the story. Except that it's Christmas and everybody's coming home. And you know how it is when everybody comes home at Christmas. It's just a replay of how everybody came home at Thanksgiving. There could be trouble. Okay, so, back to the story. The older son, you know the older son who thinks of his young brother as, at best, a conniving thief. And maybe worse. His older son was in the field, and he came and he drew near to the house. He heard the music and the dancing, and he called one of the servants and said, What's up? And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf. Vic, quick trick question, I don't expect you to know this. There's two reasons why the fatted calf is killed. And I'm trying to remember, there's, there's two reasons in the, in the ancient world why the fatted calf is killed. One of them is um, you know, great celebration of like a marriage or a feast. There's another one as well. 
trying to remember which one this is. No, that doesn't ring a bell. I'll come back to you. Search in your genius brain cavity and see if that comes to you. Um, Bailey would be the guy who'd tell us that. Your brother's come, your father's killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. Now this is very interesting, that's a very interesting description of what's happened, but it is all encompassing. Your brother's returned and he's safe and sound. And you can imagine what kind of reaction I would have to that or you. Your conniving, murdering brother has returned and everything's cool. Let's have a party. Sometimes people want to go, hold on, hold on, Max, there's more to talk about here, right? <clears throat> but he was angry, and you know, we'll give him that because anger is a natural reaction. We'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow in Bible study. But then he refused to go in. Now, here's the thing, right? Every faith agrees, unfaith disagrees. Obedience agrees, disobedience um, doesn't agree, unagrees, right? So now, and of course I'll tell you the punchline just so you can watch it happen in real time, the older son becomes the prodigal and he does exactly what he hates in his brother. And of course, you've done this too when you've said to your um, spouse, you know, you're growing up to be just like your mother or father. Go ahead, give it a try. See what happens later today. Don't bother calling me at home. I already know the answer. You can just let me know tomorrow after absolution. Right? Or you're acting just like your brother or just like your sister. Maybe this has never happened in any of your families and I'm way off base, but if it has, here it is in the scriptures. The older brother turns into the younger brother in real time, which shows you that if you want to squander your life, you don't have to actually leave home. You can do it right there in your own bedroom. It's a beautiful thing. Early iteration of video games. And what's going on? He was angry. He refused to go in. So what happens? His father, who scans the horizon and looks for trouble and wants the wounded back and knows just what to do, now runs to him. His father came out and entreated him, begged him. He said, look at this. His father, the father, the one who has honor, your heavenly father, is just begging you to come back and be forgiven and live like a real son because actually you couldn't be anything other than a real son. And even if you're a woman, you should hear real son as the locus of all gifts being given, of all privilege, of all joy, of all riches, of all honor, of all everything. You need to just translate that in the way when we say all men in the creed. It's, it's meant fully, you know, human beings, you know, is the, for, for children of God. He was angry. He refused to go in. The father scanned the horizon, came out, begged him, and then he sassed his father. Drop dead. All these years I've served you, and you're a horrible father. I never disobeyed you, and yet you're a horrible father. You never gave me anything. 
he says, coming in from his job into his house to a feast. <laughs> you never even let me play with my friends. But when this, and you can just hear this, son of yours came, you know, the one who devoured your property with prostitutes. By the way, that wasn't in the story. But you see, this is how sin works. We, our imagination of evil, our imagination of how bad it could be, our imagination of what other people done. Imagination is much, much more difficult. What's inside your head right now is much more dangerous than what's outside your head. Because, as we say, your imagination can actually run wild, which is why you stare at the ceiling at 3 a.m., why you hate people more than they should ever be hated. You know, this son of yours who did things you couldn't even imagine with your property, which was really my property, for him you killed the fatted calf. And the father said to him, this is beautiful stuff. Son, you're always with me. Remember Luther in the beginning? You're cemented to Jesus. You're joined to Christ. You're my family. You're mine. We're always together. You're never alone. Son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Same, same. I would do anything for you. Which is how, you know, most parents talk about their children. I would do anything for you. You're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting. It's proper. It's the right thing to do to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and now he is alive. He was lost and now he's found. And this is exactly what will happen to you in the two and a half minutes tomorrow when you will kneel down and confess your sins and hear absolution and stand up. This entire story will happen to you in two or three minutes and you will go from wayward, wandering, lost, horrible child to wonderful, embraced, forgiven. We're all in it together. Everything I have is mine. Everything I have is yours. Let's play child. And that's the meaning of absolution. Right? And this story is over and over and over again in the scriptures. It's the only story we've got. It's the only story we need. But you should learn in your own life to play that story out because, you know, one, it's a feast, and two, nobody wants to live their life being the older brother. All right, how you doing? Good. Yeah? I'm both. What? <laughs> You know, it's very insightful, Max. Everybody is the prodigal and the brother. If I could just give you a little advice, a little professional advice, you know, I'd prefer you have be the prodigal come home than the brother who's wandering away, okay? So just if you, we'd rather have, you know, we're kind of in the wanderer's business here. You know, the problem for you isn't Maybe some, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I don't know what particular problems you have. I mean, maybe you have trouble thinking you ever did anything wrong and we can, you should come to confession and we should talk about that. But you also might have a problem thinking that you can actually be forgiven. And we should probably talk about that. 
In either case, the sole purpose of the church is to help you lose your sins. Jesus takes away your sins, and the only way they can hurt you is if you take them back. Don't come and make excuses for them. Uh, don't come and try to do any deals that take care of them yourself. Uh, you are here, and we are here, so Jesus can make wrongs right. Very basic definition of what Jesus does. Justification, if you're a Lutheran, or forgiveness. Jesus makes wrongs right. And what we hope is that we can all together agree that sin isn't good for us, that sin does not pay off, that sin makes us subhuman, that it deforms us, that sin lies to us, and yet, um, once we're forgiven, everything is okay again. No uh, sin, no guilt. How's that? You okay? Ah, does the fatty calf have anything to do with sacrifices in the past? Every time you see a fatted calf, you should pay attention. You know, from the Old Testament through this to um, any sacrifices in the New Testament. The basic notion behind sacrifice, I mean, there's a couple of things that happen, but one is you give your most valuable thing away to show how much in love you are. And, you know, that appears again here too. Vicar, I need you. Now, regularly, there's a nervousness about such horrible things being forgiven by such a simple act of speech. So tomorrow, we're not going to ask you at the absolution point to do anything except to be receiving the gifts that God gives you. And sometimes people want to do things, thanks, to make things better. And we can talk about restitution someday. Um, restitution is important in, uh, in, in the scriptures. Zacchaeus, for example, you know, who's a big cheat, takes Jesus home, stands up, raises a wine glass and says, I'm given half of what I got to the poor, and if I cheated anybody, they get 4x return on their investments. So restitution is important uh, for a range of reasons, from a kind of penance that helps us feel the pain of what we've done to others, to a commitment of making things right. If you rob a bank and then come and sit in my office with a big bag full of money and say, I'm deeply sorry, I'll forgive you, then we're going to call the police and a lawyer simultaneously and hope they meet here at the same time and take you off my hands because my professional expertise is exhausted. You can't rob a bank, say you're sorry, and keep the money. You also can't tell a lie about somebody, say you're sorry, and not go back and tell the truth, which of course is why gossip is so difficult, especially now in social media times. When you tell a million people something that's false about somebody else, it's very hard to, you know, undo that. As, as Mark Twain said, you know, um, you all can lie faster than I can tell the truth. 
It wasn't exactly like that, but that's what he meant. You know, a lie goes around the world ten times before. Anyway, partly what I want you to understand is that when probably Pastor Nelson or Pastor Kendall says to you tomorrow, I forgive you all your sins, that actually really happens. So I give you a psalm. You know, I sort of scribbled this out at the last minute, but try to remember that the world was created by the voice of God. Try to remember that Lazarus was raised from the dead by the voice of God. Try to remember that bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus, the very same body and blood that hung on the cross by the voice of God. And then you have good reason to believe that when Jesus says, I forgive you all your sins, your sins have actually been forgiven. So I give you, you know, Psalm 29. This isn't a new idea. The voice of God is upon the waters. Verse 3. The glory of God thunders, the Lord upon many waters. Verse 4. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Or the voice does what it says. The voice does work. The voice of God breaks cedars. So God can speak, and when he speaks, a tree will break in half. Right? Or... Um, when Jesus says to the centurion, go home, your child's going to be fine, and he goes home and the child is fine. What time did that happen? Ten after ten. Huh! That's right at the moment where Jesus said, your child will be fine. The voice of God makes Lebanon skip like a calf, and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the oaks whirl and strips the forest bare. Now, um, if the, Lord, the voice of the Lord can do all that tomorrow when the voice of the Lord says, I forgive you all your sins. Same, same. The Lord who spoke to create the world, the Lord who spoke to raise Lazarus, the Lord whose voice who spoke to break trees in half, that same Lord says to you, I forgive you all your sins. The biggest problem we've got is that you don't actually believe it and I don't actually believe it. Because to say, I forgive you, seems like such a small thing and easy. And my sins seem so horrible and I presume, presume that yours do as well. But it's a way of mercy. The Lord makes things easy. Just turn the page over on the other side. It may seem odd that Jesus spoke directly to a corpse. Words are for the living. Corpses have ears, but only the living have ears to hear. But Jesus' words are not ordinary human words. Through them, God speaks. The same voice that spoke an inanimate void into creation spoke to the lifeless body. The result was the same, the generation of light. And if he wanted to write one more sentence, he could talk about you tomorrow at absolution. You're going to come and kneel down like a corpse, and then the Lord is going to forgive more sins than you've got. He's going to extract every last sin from you, and then he's going to fill you with a spirit that will give you life.
And that's the reason you come to church. You get things here that you can't get anywhere else. There's nobody else who can do that for you except for Jesus. And he wants to do it for you because he loves you. And he doesn't charge you for it, but he'd certainly be happy if you didn't keep doing your same, same sins again and again. You know, it's like you're slamming your thumb in a car door again and again. And Jesus says, Andrew, stop that. That's the response he would love. Well played. Try to repeat that again tomorrow. I had a man who had a friend uh, dying in the hospital. Sort of. Um, the sort of man who was deeply troubled by his sins and was at his last breath. And so the man who's a member here says, I'm going to watch my best friend die. And he's tortured, what do I say? So I, I gave him this little quote. And the only reason Christmas is here today is because he helps me pronounce the man's name every time we have this lesson. You remember, Chris, when you saved me last time, so I'll expect that again. Whether taking a shower, jogging on the levee, eating a meal, or praying the scriptures, a vivid recollection of some sin of my past life would flash through my mind. One afternoon, I dove under the covers trying to hide from myself. You've certainly had this experience where you've tried to hide from yourself. If you haven't had this experience, come and see me. I'll help you have it. <laughs> I felt unclean, like a moral leper scarred with sin. That same night, I read a passage from a book by Nikos Kazantzakis, Chrisman. Is that right? Yeah. You'd be the one to ask, Megan. You'd be the, you would have the right. Letters to Greco. This, if you'd say this to me on my deathbed, an old man lies dying. He is filled with grief, remorse, and guilt because of his sinful life. At length he dies and goes naked and trembling before the Lord for judgment. Jesus has a big bowl of sweet-smelling ointment and wash the man clean of his grime and shame. Then Jesus says, don't bother me with that stuff anymore. Go over and play. Right? That's the church. Or it should be the church. And that's you. Or it should be you. Or everything we're trying to do is make that you. That's the only thing we're trying to do. That you would come to know a Jesus who would say to you, you should go over there and play. The sinful stuff, I'll take care of that. Of course, you understand that go over there and play means go over there and have some fun, which means go over there and be happy, which means go over there and obey, which means go over there and be joy, which means go over there and be holy. You get that, right? It's not that you can just make this up on your own. You can't make up your own games. The games have boundaries, hedges, rules for your own good. So you know good brother doesn't cheat at Monopoly again this Christmas and ruin it for everybody, okay? That can happen. Jesus understands that. 
Go over there and play, right? And if you could come to know Jesus like that, as opposed to any other Jesus, your life would be completely different. And your life together would be completely different, and your kids' lives would be all different, and your family life would be different, and Christmas would be different, your church would be different. You'd even have Saturday mornings where they wouldn't block the road for holy people trying to get the church for people in reindeer ears and silly suits running down in the front. The world would be a different place. And that's, the all, that's all we got. The thing is, it's undeniably compelling. Right? When people don't come to church, it's because they don't know this. That they don't know that there's a place where wanderers can be welcomed back on the same terms as everybody else, on the same terms as Jesus, on the same terms, which is the reason there was a Reformation and the reason there was a Christmas and the reason there was, any, it's the reason there were church fathers and mothers. It's the reason you put yourself under the care of these ancients who are far smarter than we and you want to have this kind of church because you have kids and you want your kids to grow up in a world like this because it's a better world than another kind of world. And all the other worlds are imposters, right? And at the end of the day, they all break down and then this world carries on forever. It's glorious stuff. All right, quick question about anything. I want to be even though, you know, we got a little bit off to a soft start um, I want to be respectful of your time. Honor our deal, which is to take all the food home. Vic, you'll help them. You're a fine human being. Let's pray, and then if you want to talk, you can hang around. We will go next week, and then the following week is TBD, depending on you. I'm very happy to come along, but I don't want to be alone and sad and not have anybody to play with. So we'll just, we'll just sort of... And if you're here for Christmas, Christmas is glorious. I mean, when you, when Peter goes to the font and chants the ancient um, announcement of Christmas from the Roman Missal, 12 Olympiads, you kind of go, we're on to something here, right? You should come. If you can come here for Christmas, there is nothing like it. So Christmas Eve, an Easter vigil, off the hook. You, you got it. You, it is unbelievable. You just, you, you know, so bring your friends. It's fabulous. Anyway, we'll pray and hang around if you want. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, friends.